Welcome to Sinner's Take, another Catholic guys podcast of which we are the worst. I'm Alec. And I'm Cody. And today we're going to be talking about objections to the faith. Welcome back, Cody, first of all. Thank you. You're becoming a frequent contributor here. It's shocking to me, <laughs> as, as it is, I'm sure, to everyone else. <laughs> as we were talking about what to do, Eddie is gone, as is Bobby, on retreat, mm. so praying for them. We, in coming up with a topic for this week, we were going over just some notes that we have, and last year for confirmation class, I put together a list of common objections that I see to the faith to go over with kids because there are answers to these things and they're good questions to ask. So I tried to like aggregate them. So tonight we're going to try and touch on four of them. They kind of go hand in hand, two and two. Cody, any opening thoughts? Nothing on topic. The question that I have for you that I had kind of asked before, but wanted to get your genuine reaction on was, do you find that you have kind of like a podcast voice? Because I go back and I listen to myself in these recordings and I, I feel... Like I talk much different than I do in actual, like in normal conversation. I, I feel like yeah, there's something about the pitch or the, the cadence or the, yeah, the yeah. meter of my voice that is just totally off. Absolutely. I mean, like we're talking and then as soon as record, it just flips a switch as it, soon as I hit it record. It totally does. My heart rate goes up. And yeah. So nervous yeah. still. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not alone in this. I'm, that's good to know. Yeah. It's. I hope it's something that will become more comfortable. Well, I had one when I was teaching too for a long time. It would, you know, I don't, I, I don't know why, but I talk differently when I teach, and I move funny when I teach too. It's like, it's almost like there are parts of you that go onto autopilot that you don't notice because your attention is elsewhere. So mm-hmm. the way I sound, or like you said, the cadence of my voice. But when I'm teaching, it, it's even like the way I walk becomes really? really funny or I start to spin around <laughs> or I shuffle a lot. Like rather than walking side, like sidestepping on the board, I, I'll just like shuffle my feet. So I like look like I glide across the ground. <laughs> but it's not something I even think about doing. It's just something that happens, you huh. know, because I get so caught up in what I'm presenting. Yeah. Interesting. Probably have more thoughts on it, but that's okay. So do you have, has this occurred to you? Because like I brought you this list and I imagine that if not all, most of these are things that you run into pretty frequently. But like, is this something that you have in your head of here are the things I hear a lot of from kids? Not so much from kids because I don't have the privilege of teaching theology. Um, I, I find that most of the time what I present in class or any of the theological topics they're really they're really willing to listen to because it's not math. Um, they they actually Which is what you teach. Math is what I you teach. teach mathematics, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> when they know that we're set to talk about the rational root theorem or synthetic division of polynomial equations and I'm like, "Oh hey, you know, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Teresa of Avila, pray for us. They'll all jump on it and be like, who's St. Teresa of Avila? Tell her, tell us her, her whole life story. So that that's uh, the secret. We need to enroll kids in other classes and then slip theology in there. Precisely. So they think it's a tangent. So they'll get yeah. super into it and they'll egg you on to keep you talking about it. 
so that and they then don't the have final to learn is math. just all yeah. theology <laughs> exactly gotcha <laughs> not actually a math class no um i wouldn't say that as far as objections that i've heard from students i have done a little bit of i don't know what you maybe just like secular evangelization i.e going into bars and talking to people or talking to my uber driver or how I mean, do you shoehorn and, that in uh, sometimes it comes up sometimes it doesn't it's, it it's, didn't come up organically <laughs> i i really forced it yeah <laughs> no i talked about on another episode like one of the uber drivers that i had had like prayer beads in his car and so that was very natural progression last year i ubered a lot to the airport because I, I was living kind of by myself in i had a roommate so i wasn't totally by myself but you know we both took a lot of frequent trips and we weren't always able to take each other to the airport so there were a lot of uber trips and i was also working in a church and so anytime anyone asked me what i did for work it'd be really easy to bring up yeah. oh i'm a catholic youth minister and I'm like oh really my brother's like a, a pastor over at like this this church and you know you kind of get into talking about it that way on the mission trip that i took you know where we did a lot of bar evangelization I don't know. It it just when you go in with the intention of doing it and with I don't know, one of my friends is a missionary right now and and he kind of he talks a lot about you know like these it, it's not really what was his phraseology? He said it's God highlighting people in your life or highlighting certain conversations, but it, it just it sort of happens. You know, there was a guy that I talked to and he was talking to me all about the different substances that he used for a good time <laughs> and suggested that I should do the same. And to which uh, you immediately I, replied, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, you have some on you right now, right? Like, <laughs> no, to which I was able to respond, you know, Oh, I feel like I get a lot of the same effect that you're talking about without any of the negative side effects through prayer. So if you're looking for it and you're looking for the opportunity to evangelize, I think they just sort of come up, but do you feel like, is that where you draw the line, right? And I've heard it said, we propose, we don't impose. Because I think that that could relatively easily be misconstrued as just always looking to, and I go back to the Kevin Hart thing of, you ever talk to someone who just loves Jesus? You say, good morning. And they say, it is a good morning because Jesus woke us up. I love him. Do you? And like, <laughs> where where do you draw that line? It just, it just has to be genuine. You know, I mean, you can tell when people are, at least in my mind, right? I feel like you can tell when people are forcing it. And I feel like I can even tell when I myself am forcing it. And it never goes as well as when it actually just genuinely comes up in conversation. Because it will. I don't know. You you go in with the intention of wanting people to know his goodness. And he's, he certainly wants them to know as well. And so, you know, you're partnering with him in that. But, yeah. So, looking through this list, I think that these are some common objections that I have heard or at least feel is kind of where like the mind of the society kind of goes to. And I mean, even you and I were just going through subreddits of, yeah, of objections to God, to, to faith or to God's existence or just to, and sometimes you don't even know what, you know, but there's, there's, they're hurt and they're angry about something, whether that is God's existence or the, the Catholic Church or just Christianity in general or whatever it is, I think that there are a lot of objections out there and that these are some good ones, common ones. 
and good to think about. <laughs> and, 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 Just trying to fill time while I was writing something exactly. down. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Appreciate not, that. They're not unthoughtful objections or stupid objections. They're coming from a place of reflection. The church encourages us to ask questions. And so these are good questions that I think if you are asking them, with an open heart and you are actually open to the answer it's a great thing to ask because there are people who ask them a bit cynically and they're not looking for an answer they just want to be upset about it which is fair some of these things are worth being upset over and struggling with but again you want to be open to coming to an answer and, and I think this will be something to which we return, whether it's subreddits or other things from the list or maybe similar topics with other people so we get different views on it. But we're going to start with a relatively well-known one, which is Pascal's wager. And I, I think it's worth noting that this isn't as much of an objection as it is almost kind of a proactive response to what could be an objection or way of thinking yeah i'm realizing now that the first one that we chose is not an objection when i was planning on titling the episode objections <laughs> perfect um so for those of you who don't know i'm gonna read this but if you don't know i'm reading it then i'll sound smart <laughs> uh, pascal's wager is an argument in philosophy presented by the 17th century french philosopher mathematician and physicist blaise pascal it posits that humans bet with their lives that God either exists or does not. That's from Wikipedia. A little bit more would say, the argument that it is in one's own best interest to behave as if God exists, since the possibility of eternal punishment in hell outweighs any advantage in believing otherwise. So that's to say, if God is real and you believe in him, great. If God is real and you don't believe in him, you're going to hell. If God isn't real and you believe in him, nothing happens. If God isn't real and you don't believe in him, nothing happens. So your best bet, given those four options, are to believe in God. Because whether he's real or not, you're better off than the alternative. And not not only with like an eternal perspective, but even with a temporal perspective in mind of what your life looks like now right because if i live as if god is real and i take all of the morality that comes with that along and the striving for personal perfection my worst case scenario is dang it i was wrong god isn't real but i lived a virtuous life which we have always known, or I guess maybe not known, but even the early philosophers have posited that that is the happiest life. So I lived a life that was virtuous, happy for me, and benefited others around me. But I also happened to be wrong that God wasn't, that God was real. So yeah, now worst I just... Worst case scenario. That, and that's my wor that is my worst possible case scenario. Not my, to trivialize like, the things that it costs to believe in God, right? Because there yeah. are things, there are certain things that we do deny ourselves in the pursuit of virtue that can be difficult. Now, 
that not to get into a whole another argument of why the benefits outweigh the cost of living a virtuous life, but yeah, worst case scenario, you have lived a virtuous, beneficial life. Yeah, and not uh, yeah, not without its sacrifices. I think that's a good a good point. But then you're on the flip side, you live as if God doesn't exist. Your best case scenario. Because if you're going to follow it out to its conclusion, then why live a moral life? You know, what is other than to the benefit of others, which maybe, again, because we know that that leads to happiness, you know, you're looking for a deeper happiness, but why not just live for the pleasure? You know, why not just just go all in for it, you know, and, and live live life for the pleasure, for the fun of it? But then even then your best case scenario is I experienced a lot of pleasure and now I'm dead and there's not, there's nothing left. Your worst case scenario is I was incorrect and now I lived a life of pleasure, which however that made me ultimately feel internally, whether that was numb or dissatisfied, which I think are really the only two that I've I personally have ever encountered in people that choose to live that lifestyle. And now I experience a reality where I am going through eternity without God, which is an eternity without love or goodness. Yeah. Now that's the groundwork for the wager don't want to mistake it that we are arguing in favor of this wager. So we're not trying to like convert people via Pascal <laughs> here. So what would, Cody, what, what's your first response? Because this is a question that I've seen in confession, in confession, not in confession. In, <laughs> when um, Alec hears confessions, yeah, people often right. bring this. To- um, in confirmation, do you have like a go-to response to this? Well, what I guess what's the question that, what question are you if posing? a kid asks you or in class if maybe you're talking about or you're on a retreat or something or a kid tells you i believe in god because it's better for me because of the wager and he lays out whether he knowingly or not lays out this idea of i believe in god because if i'm if i don't and i'm wrong i'm in trouble yeah i guess my first thought would be it's good that you do it's good that you believe in god and it's good that you're living a moral life you're still not experiencing the fullness though right because i don't think that god wants us to grind out this life (laughs) in misery only experiencing the cost of the sacrifices that we've made to live a virtuous life and then die and then be rewarded i believe and have experienced that even now, the benefit of relationship with God in this life outweighs the cost of the sacrifice for virtuous life. So if you're stop, I guess that would be the response to it. If you're stopping at, I'm living a moral life and believing in God only because I think it's good for me, right? Well, for one, you're not experiencing as much of God as you could. And, and two, part of that virtuous life is to move out from yourself so if you're only living if you're only trying to live the virtuous life for yourself you're kind of missing the point yeah and this is like your intentions matter and i would say right off the bat 
part of the Catholic faith is the understanding that God is love, and love goes outward. So this wager is totally centered on yourself, which is totally inward. So right off the bat, it, it must be incompatible with the Catholic view of God, being that he is love, and love is willing the good of the other as other. So me wanting what's best for me is not willing other people's good. So it must contradict it at some level. Mm-hmm. How do we bridge that gap from doing what seems like a good thing for the wrong reasons? Why is that not enough? I guess the response would be, again, it's not enough because you're not experiencing as much of God as you could, as he desires to have you experience of him. Which in turn is better for you anyways. Yeah, and and the, and the same thing with the, like you said, like the love going outwards. You're not experiencing as much goodness as you could. So even even if your intentions were purely selfish, you're not even doing that well. <laughs> so so you're, you're not even doing that as good as you could. It, it would be in your better interest to experience more of God and live more selflessly if indeed you wanted to only for the selfish pleasure of consolation in prayer and consolation from helping others. Yeah, you're better off not doing what is at first glance best for you. Yeah. But I guess, is this is this a question that you experienced in confirmation class? Like, is this something that you talked about? What was your response to the kid? This was something that it didn't totally resolve for the kid because we addressed it pretty briefly and then it was enough pretty much what you and i have said so far was enough for the kids who weren't struggling with this and for the ones who were we stayed after to talk about it more and that's the thing with answering this question is this is a starting point into a lot of other good questions so this doesn't really get resolved without a lot of other conversations and it can take one of a few paths so Mm. i don't think If this is something with which you're struggling, keep looking for other resources because pretty much what we have said so far is probably what we're qualified to say or what we have the knowledge to say confidently without (laughs) leading anyone astray. Yeah. But I think, I do think that, again, maybe depending on what you're struggling with in particular about Pascal's wager or with this line of thinking uh, could be resolved with the answer to the next question that we had chosen, which was if God is merciful, right? Then it, it seems like my only options aren't the four that you listed. It seems that there's also a fifth option where I do live a life of pleasure and hedonism, I guess, if, if you want to put a name to it. I live a life for myself and just go all in on that. And then at the end, I just beg God for mercy and bang. Yeah, I'm, barring I'm, a surprise death. Yeah. I'll get the benefit of eternal salvation and get to live the life I want to here. Yeah. So it seems like I could split the difference and have it both ways. So why wouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, that is a misunderstanding of 
what mercy is and what forgiveness is. And I think the important word here is the contrition. So contrition being the state of feeling remorseful and penitent. So there has to be a genuine... Regret isn't the word I want to use, but... Because it's more future-focused. It's more, I I will not again. Yeah. Mm. And I think... I think that's fair. You can you can wish that it hadn't, but I agree with you. I do think that it is more future focused than it is focused on the past because the point of contrition in in life is like if it were with a friend to salvage the relationship that you have broken, not to hash on the past and wait and wait and wait until you feel like they've let go of what happened. Because you're never you're never perfectly gonna feel like they let go of what happened, or that you could ever let go of what happened. Yeah. So right away, you can't just. And this is the same with. I mean, this is confession on on the whole, right? We can't say like, okay, I'm gonna watch porn tonight because there's confession tomorrow right before mass, mm-hmm. so it's fine. I can just I'll get it out of the way and then I'll go confess. Doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that you can't confess right afterwards because you, again, might be contrite. But if you're kind of premeditating it that way, that's not how the confession works. And I've seen this come up, comes to mind. There was a TV show, I can't remember what it was, that like spoofed it. And it was that where he's like, all I have to do is apologize. And then it's like, I never did it. And it's misunderstanding what the va- the value of what an apology is. And I think we all know it. Like you said, put it in the the context of your friend. Living a life that you know to be wrong with the intention of trying to manipulate the system defeats what mercy is. Because mercy is something that we don't deserve and we have to recognize that we don't deserve it in order to receive it. I think it's also just a misunderstanding of the system in general, right? It it's not even a system. It's not yeah. <laughs> it's not um it's not as though I, I had a teacher in high school, love the guy, but he said in the I don't even remember how it came up. I, we were we were talking about like cultures and stuff and religion and I again I don't know exactly how we came to this point, but he said at one point he said something to the effect of it you know, to my understanding, and I could be wrong about that. This is him talking, not me. He said, to my understanding, and I could be wrong about this. It seems like all Christianity is, is a system of balance, where as long as the good that I do outweighs the bad, then I'm in good shape. And right there, right, what are we, what are we missing? Is the fact that, like, God is not even in that picture. (laughs) Yeah. And and the, like, the whole point of Christianity, the whole point of Jesus Christ coming down was to have relationship with us. So if we just take him out of the equation of mercy, then it, we're not even really seeking mercy at all. We're, we're seeking justification for our own action. Yeah, what can we get away with? What's the maximum we can get away with? Which, which again, is it goes back to the same thing. We're, we're cheating ourselves because we're living for pleasure, which will fade away and diminish and leave us dissatisfied when we could have a relationship with the God of the universe 
who for some reason is madly in love with us right has has chosen us to exist and chosen us as necessary and i mean even right there you you can see what you're missing out on by ignoring him and leaving him out of the picture i instantly have no access to the fact that i am loved infinitely and like you said and it's a misunderstanding of his mercy because if i if someone loved me infinitely i wouldn't abuse that there wouldn't even be the temptation to <laughs> to try and like what can i get away with you know still have the justification of my action in the end it, it just almost doesn't even seem to fit into the picture yeah when you kind of open it up and think of it as a relationship but it seems like we almost use a different lens when we're talking about the faith instead of thinking of it as a relationship, a real relationship that we're having. So think about it in terms of a relationship. Can you just say, if your friend said, hey, I'm going to be really mean to you all the time. I'm going to take your stuff, not do what you ask, put you down. But then right at the end, I'm going to say, I'm sorry. And we can be best friends right before I die. That's like, that sounds hilariously like not a good relationship. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't think anyone would be on board for that. So think about it with the other side in mind and uh, make it a little more tangible. I think it, this one kind of falls apart on its own. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> All right. So we have two more. So those two were kind of tied together and these next two are more or less tied together. And this one, this first one, we're going to talk about it probably pretty briefly because there might be a whole episode on it. The episode being on scientism. So letting mm. science be the only type of knowledge that is of value. Uh, so the one that we hear all the time is science disproved God's existence. And this is something that, like Cody mentioned earlier, going through like the atheism subreddit and things where they're a lot of the discussions, they begin with the assumption that God isn't real or that God is real. I see it from both sides, but I see frequently people starting at, well, science has already disproved God. We know that. And then going on. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to start with why, where's the disconnect? Why, what do you think they're actually getting at when they're saying science has disproved God? Disproven? Disproved? Disproved, mm. I think. We'll see. <laughs> and I, my speculation on it, I guess, would be that the disconnect is they, or in order, in order to have that kind of line of thought, I think that you kind of have to have a, some misunderstanding of what Christianity is claiming of God or just what we could, we could gather of God from philosophy because science disproving that the sun is a man in a chariot. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm okay to make that leap, right? Science disproving that lightning is, is thrown down by some man up in the clouds I'm okay. I'm okay with that, right? No, no one, no one is questioning that. But uh, for science to disprove that 
there is some greater being who is simple in his nature, who, you know, however we want to call him, the un philosophically the the uncaused cause, the first mover, the um, I, I I guess those are really the only two examples I can think of off the top <laughs> of my head. <laughs> Embarrassing, um, but for science to try and make a claim like that that there couldn't be a god in in a grand sense or a general sense i don't think that we can say that because science never set out to prove that and also doesn't deal with the things of god right science was always and i think has always set out to discover truth of the created reality right and while there are things that we can learn about God from the created reality, we can't, by observing the created reality, make definitive claims about the uncreated reality, right? Or of a spiritual reality. We can't. We can't even touch that with science, right? We could say that science doesn't deal with it, or that science can't make observations of it, but to try and use science to disprove some reality that is not created, I think is almost contradictory of what science was meant to be, which was just to observe and hypothesize and test, right? If I can't observe it like empirically, then I don't really have any business using science to make a claim about it. And then the question would be, is science and what we can measure empirically the only thing that is real? Because I would argue that all we would have to do to, for this argument to not hold water is to show that there is anything that exists outside of science. If anything can exist outside of science, then that sets a precedent that God could be one of those things that is outside of science. And if that's the case, then science cannot disprove him because he is not part of science. Mm -hmm. That is a bit verbose and maybe easier seen <laughs> than heard yeah. but i believe that it follows and the next thing would be science cannot prove or disprove god so we're not just saying that it can't disprove it we're not going to prove god mm. in a scientific sense where he's not and this is bishop baron talks about all the time he's not one being among many he's not a thing in the universe he is to be right i am who i am so we're looking for him with the wrong lens if we're attacking it empirically. Mm. A question I would have for you before I get into my typical response to this is, you majored in chemistry. You went to college doing a hard science. So how did this come up in your studies? Uh, I guess it was something that... Chemistry and theology. Yes, I did. But... <laughs> I majored in both. Um <laughs> That's the hard part is there there wasn't a ton of overlap because in the theology classes, we would mostly study what had been written by theologians about God. And in, I mean, in chemistry classes, you're dealing with chemistry, you know, so, so right there, I think on a like basic level, the fact that they don't even talk about the other kind of points to the fact that they can't super much talk about the other, right? Again, there are things in the created reality that I can kind of use to understand God. You know, I can see a beautiful sunset 
and I can, I can experience beauty and in that way kind of touch God. I, I, I can learn the truth of the created reality through chemistry and in that way kind of touch God or touch the mind of God. But I can't make definitive statements about who he is or what he is by studying organic chemistry. So it, it, it was something that had to kind of be brought up by one of my professors who is a legend. He's in a, that he's not real? No, he's <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, you question it sometimes. The guy the guy has done like three Ironman triathlons and also played Division One soccer. Uh, when he went to college, he he studied under one of like the most renowned organic chemists of our time. I think he went to Harvard for his postdoc. So it's, wow. just, I mean, yeah, construct like the yeah. <laughs> like the perfect human being. <laughs> Other than Jesus, and <laughs> and you find this this chemistry professor at Franciscan, incredible guy, and it was something that he kind of had to bring up in class. Was is there any overlap, or is are they at odds with each other? And I guess the the short answer is no. They're not because theology and chemistry both set out to accomplish the same goal which is to discover truth, to engage, wrestle with, and encounter the truth. Different facets of the truth, right? Theology sets out to understand, like, the truth of God, the truth itself, and chemistry sets out to know the truth of the material or the created reality. So they both set out to accomplish the same end, and... They both kind of serve each other in some way. I, I think the it's easier to see as far as like chemistry into theology, like chemistry serving theology, like the complexity of any anything uh, chemical, the complexity of the of the atom or of a molecule or of like some of the behavior, but then also the order. I it, it should descend into chaos, but it doesn't. It's held together by some order. So why is there order? And that's kind of where you leave chemistry and enter theology, right? And so so they do serve each other. Like they answer questions that the other can't. Theology can't answer the question why there is order, but it can't answer what the order is. Chemistry can answer what the order is, but not why there is order. So they, they both answer questions that the other poses i guess right yeah and this is the watchmaker analogy right if you're walking through a forest and you see a watch on the ground you're gonna think oh whose watch is this someone created it you're not gonna think that it came together spontaneously through random elements interacting because it's so intricate i know that that's not that satisfying of an art this is the monkey on a typewriter (laughs) right eventually he'll spit out shakespeare um I know it's not a very satisfying argument for a lot of people because, sure, given eternal time and enough possibilities, blah, blah, I, I don't tend to stick in this argument too long because it has never, in my experience, changed someone's mind. So I'll go through it, but I understand if that doesn't flip them over, except to say that what's more likely because you're already establishing that you're not going with what is the most likely explanation. But in any case, I'm going to go through the two kind of responses that I usually give. The first one 
is this tends to go hand in hand with like that Catholics are anti-science, which also follows with what's the church's stance on evolution and do they take every bit of the Bible, e.g. creation, literally. So the first thing I found this, this list, um, this is a, and call me out if any of these are wrong, but this is just a, a short list of like notable Catholic scientists. Bacon, Oresme, Buridan, Galileo, Mersen, Agricola, Laviose, Boscovich, Vesalius, Steno, Kircher, Pasteur, Mendel, Descartes, Copernicus, Lemaitre. Do you know any of those? Uh, honestly, I think you mispronounced Lavoisier. And, sure, and, I'm sure I did. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out if that was actually his name or not. So you missed a few? I missed a few. Yeah, um, I'm familiar with a couple of them. But I, I know at least a few of them. Um, so look into that list, if nothing else, just as a place to start, at least. I know some of them, like uh, a, a lot of scientists like to offer the Big Bang Theory in a disproval of God, not knowing that it was created by a Catholic priest, yeah. uh, which is always a fun conversation afterwards mm-hmm. or, or Gregor Mendel. He's right? on, he was on the list. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Someone I missed. No, e- even that is, it, I mean, that was weird for me to hear, you know, cause I always heard of, of him in like textbooks and stuff in middle school and high school. I'm like, Oh, Gregor, Gregor Mendel. And then found out he was a priest and it was like, what? Like, yeah. Why is that not something I had heard of him? Yeah. Um, not to mention yeah. their role in, university systems yeah i think anyone who has been properly exposed to what the catholic church is and believes and has done knows that the church is not afraid of or against knowledge or science not that people of the church cannot use their power in the church to discourage certain knowledge because i know this is a favorite argument that maybe we'll touch on another time about how you know, the opium of the masses, right? They did, The church doesn't want people to learn to read and write so that they can't question the Bible. That warrants its own conversation. But it always strikes me, and I offer this, I don't know what talk it is of Bishop Barron's, but it might have been his talk at Google when he's saying, you know, when people ask me, how old is the earth? I say, I don't know, leave, it, leave that to the scientists. You know, he's not he doesn't hesitate to concede ground on things that aren't his purview. Mm-hmm. And I think that offering that oftentimes helps a lot of non-Catholics when they realize like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Catholic church doesn't have a stance that evolution is not real. And to my knowledge, to my knowledge, I, the other, the other caveat that I feel is necessary to make is I, we are not the end all be all source on this. This, yes. this is more of like this, <laughs> This is meant to be like, here are some helpful things that I've found in my study, right? And I obviously learned these from somewhere. So there is a higher authority, <laughs> if not like 10 or 15 higher authorities <laughs> on top, like over top of me. Yeah, do your um, research. So this is meant to be a jumping off point, not your one-stop shop for all things apologetics. It's interesting because that was one of the questions that had been brought up in that in that class with that uh, organic chemistry professor was the question of evolution and what the church's stance on was on it. And to my remembrance, I don't know that there is a hard stance on it. Now, again, I could be very wrong and I don't want to preach heresy or something against what the church teaches, but 
I don't know that there is a hard stance on it. And I think for, for the reason that you had given, like if it comes out and is 100% obvious by scientific inquiry that evolution had to be true, it's not, it's not like Catholicism topples. Yes. Or, or the belief of the church topples because it's always open to truth. It's always open to revelation of, of any kind. And while, while there won't be any more revelation of God, there's, there's constantly revelation of the created reality through new discoveries in science. So you know, as long as that scientific inquiry is academically honest and true, then obviously the church would be open to it. Yeah. I think that's my Yeah, and I think that was the the main point of there is no truth that could be discovered that would topple the faith because part of the faith is truth, right? Truth, beauty, mm-hmm. and goodness. In any case, the last thing I wanted to touch on with this was for me, I have such a hard time with this argument because everyone has different arguments that work for them for the existence of God. The one that's always struck me in this specific realm of why science can't disprove God is that science can't get itself off the ground. And this is the uncaused cause, right? And the example that I was given was that of hanging a chandelier. You start with a chandelier and you add a chain link to it. And you tie a chain link to that and a chain link to that and chain link to that. No matter how many links you add, unless you attach it to the ceiling, it's going to fall. It can't hold itself up unless it's attached to the ceiling. So that's Mm -hmm. to say, we can't say that things just started moving without a cause when one of the fundamental laws of science, like science falls apart unless we go on, which law is it? Newton's first law of physics. (laughs) Unless we go on (laughs) Newton's first law of physics that... (laughs) That any object at rest will stay at rest and any object in motion will stay in motion unless acted on by an outside force. Right. So according to science's own rules, it can't even get started. So I don't know how anyone in good scientific faith can make this argument. And I'd be open if you have a perspective on that, because I really struggle with people who make this argument. Yeah. And again, I think I think it is based on that misunderstanding, tying back to that misunderstanding of God, where if, if what science is trying to disprove is that there is like the mythological sense of the literal man in the sky riding a chariot that dictates the sun moving back and forth across the sky. Yeah. Science, science has, has the authority to disprove that. Right. But we're not making the claim that God is a man in a chariot driving the sun. We're we're making the claim, (laughs) we're making the claim that he is being itself, which I, again, science can't, it just can't, it can't touch that. Right. So I, I, I <laughs> it feel- makes me think of when um, they're talking about, I forget what it was. And he's like, yeah, I drink, <laughs> I drink like three liters of soda. Three liters. That's like 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like not even the same metric. Yeah. They're playing on the metric system uh-huh. against Imperial, but it just, it's not the same conversation. Yeah. Which I think we've gotten that point across. I, I also feel that way. So the last point that we wanted to touch on is the argument that it's unnatural. We have to learn about God. It's not something that we just discover or innately know. Do you want to open that one up at all? Yeah, I, I feel like 
it ties in with the last argument because it's what we just asserted that in some way it could be said if, if your understanding of natural is created right then yeah it is supernatural it, it it's not god himself is not simply contained by the natural like by what we can see and touch and taste by the created um, there is something above the natural, su- something supernatural about him. And so, you know, you could get caught up in, in that phraseology of unnatural versus supernatural, or are they the same thing? So I guess the question that I would pose to you is, why aren't they the same thing? And is it unnatural? Yeah, natural, and this is what I see, being unnatural and having to be learned are very different things. Learning how to eat is something that I don't pop out of mom knowing. I wouldn't say that eating is unnatural. Speaking. I think. At least making noise. Communication is natural. But you have to learn like the words and the grammar and the all of that. Right. And our capacity for it, you could argue, is what makes it natural. So unnatural and learned aren't at odds and as far as unnatural goes this is where it lends itself nicely to the argument from desire which i know is something that eddie would do a better job presenting than me because i think he's really fond of this argument but you jump in where you want argument from desire being at least this is the way that eddie had presented it um to the to the kids at school name redacted um (laughs) is this if there was an alien race that came down to earth and they encountered a world that had been, you know, gone through some catastrophe. And we're in this case, we're going to say it's a flood. It has gone through some flood. There's one man left on the whole face of the earth, right? It's him, his boat, and then a bunch of water. They encounter him and he says to them, I'm hungry. What does that tell them? there must have been or that there is right that must tell them about him or about the world that he lived in that there is food right now in this case that analogy kind of makes it seem like there was food right so that's that's all that this argument could say because that's a common objection to this is that based on this analogy the fact that he is hungry means that there was food. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is food now. But that's based simply on that analogy, not necessarily on the argument. And yeah, I mean, could you say that there was something to instill that desire, but that it no longer exists? Yeah, and I, I think that's the common... Which is a misunderstanding of God and his relationship to time. And I know yeah. I just interrupted you again, but... No, I, I still think that it speaks to the reality that there is at least the reality that there must be something that exists that can satisfy that desire or the desire would not exist, right? Even if there was food, I still have that desire. So there must be something, even if there's like not actually food in front of me, there must actually be something that can satisfy that desire or I wouldn't be hungry anymore. And think about it. Like, think about the desires that you have. Can you think of a desire that you have that there is nothing that would fulfill it? 
when you're stuck underwater, you have a desire to breathe, air exists that would fulfill your desire to breathe. You're thirsty, water exists that would fulfill that desire. You have a desire to, well, and it's hard to even talk about desire without its object. Like you have yeah. a desire to play on the team means that there is a team on which you could play. So it's almost, it's so hard to unlink desire and what fulfills that desire. And I think that's where the argument comes yeah. is we have this infinite desire. Only something infinite can fill it. And that is what we call God. Well, what, what are some of these infinite desires then? Like what, what would we classify as an infinite desire? I would say anyone who has begun research into like existentialism, which Cody and I talked about before we started recording today, there is a desire there. I mean, anyone who's really engaging with whether or not there is a God has a desire for truth. They want the truth of if there is a God or not. And I think truth is an infinite desire. I think love is an infinite desire. And a third one would sound really good right now. <laughs> Goodness, beauty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like those. Because that that's just it is we're, we're not... The one that Eddie uses a lot is is goodness, right? Because there's no one thing that is good that satisfies my desire for the good. There's no one piece of knowledge that I learn and I'm like, well, now I never have to learn anything again. I have zero more questions about anything at all, right? Because of this one particular piece of knowledge. No. Or beauty, you know, I see a beautiful sunset and in the moment it's, it's almost kind of bittersweet because I see the beauty here and I just want to see more. It's almost as if when you encounter the thing that should satisfy that desire, it inflames a desire for more of it, right? So it's not a particular beauty that we desire, but beauty itself. It's not a particular goodness that we desire. It's goodness itself and no, no particular truth, but truth itself. So those, those would be like the infinite. And I think love would also fall under that category. There's no, there's no love that I could receive from a human that ultimately stops the question in my mind of, am I actually loved or do they actually love me? There's no, or a dog that doesn't count. That dog doesn't count. <laughs> Which is also a good one we should talk about at some point. Animals relationship. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the argument is is that I know that's the argument. I shouldn't say a thing. <laughs> the argument is that because these desires exist and because we do in every other case with a real desire, right? Or a natural desire have such a hard time unlinking the desire from the thing that satisfies the desire. And because it is a natural desire, because that's the other distinction that you have to make is, well, what is a natural versus an unnatural desire? You know, I saw, when I saw How to Train Your Dragon for the first time, I left that theater. I wanted a pet dragon more than anything else in the world at that point. Like so, Even if it was a Gronkle. So bad. Anything <laughs> at all would have satisfied that desire. The problem is that's not a real desire because I didn't want a dragon before I went to go see that movie. There was something that placed that idea in my head. Whereas as a kid, you're always asking questions. You don't have to be taught to ask questions. You're always asking questions about and in some way seeking truth or 
you're always wanting to have like genuine fun, right? And no, no one encounter of genuine fun is enough to satisfy like the desire for fun. You're never like, I never have to play another game again. Yeah. I want to circle back real quick to the dragon thing where I think, where I also (laughs) want to dragon, (laughs) Um, (laughs) where I, you can boil down even the desire for a dragon to these more innate desires about which we're talking, where it's, why would you want a dragon? For the affection of that relationship, that's a desire for love. Why would you want a dragon? So you can fly? That's a desire for beauty. And I think that anything like that can still be boiled down further. And I think that does something. Yeah. The one for me was always bending from Avatar. Yeah. I every time I watch Avatar, all I want to do afterwards is is airbend. That's all that's it. That's that's all I want after no, after that. The but, other, you don't want to waterbend or firebend. No, earth earthbending earth is fine. Firebending or, or, or waterbending are not as attractive to me personally. Just the creativity of the airbending or like the free spiritedness of that and like the security or the the strength of Earthbending. But again, right, I'm not what I just said. I don't I don't even like like necessarily the idea of being able to like Aang does in the first like sneeze really hard and knock people up against the wall. My desire is for like the free spiritedness or like the ability to fly or some strength, right? Some some virtue or some desire to be more. So yeah, that that's all it's saying is that I don't even know if we've actually <laughs> fully expressed the argument yet. Um, the argument is that because there are these desires that are natural and infinite, there must be something that is infinite to satisfy the desire, which again, we call God. Yeah, I've heard it referred to as like God-sized hole in the heart or quoting Augustine, uh, what are you what are you filling your god size hole? But that's the thing. That requires your heart to be bigger than God. If the hole in it is infinite, <laughs> your heart is bigger than infinite. It's a big heart. That's a <laughs> he has an elephant heart. <laughs> uh, well, that's it for me. If you have any last minute thoughts before I wrap it up. No. Cool. I feel like we have talked so, long enough. I also think we have talked long enough. Um <laughs> Yeah, so these are just conversations, uh, good questions to be asked, and this is not the end of any of those conversations, but uh, hopefully it offers something of substance for thoughts that you may be having. We'll probably do something similar to this in the future, I mean, covering objections, and we'll call them speed bumps or obstacles in the faith, maybe in a different format, but I'm glad we got at least something covered here. Yeah. And again, if these answers weren't satisfying or if we said something that you're like, that doesn't sound right or that like really upsets me or offends me or, or something like that, then I guess the challenge to be issued is figure out why, right? Or figure out what the answer, like in, engage the truth. In, in, don't in, be in content op- to not know certain things. Yeah. Because there is an answer, even if we have not presented it well or don't know it, right? There is some answer that exists and write us we are more than happy to read and respond to whatever thoughts come our way Mm -hmm. Mm. whatever relevant thoughts (laughs) come our way (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. There is the sinner's take. Thank you for listening. You will hear us in the next one. Nice. <laughs>